Welcome to the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I'm Deborah Herlax Enos, a small town girl turned TV nutritionist and healthy living expert. I design health programs for the average guy or gal, including those average guys named Metallica. On September 1st, 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked every oncologist the same question, why did I get cancer? But none of my doctors had good answers for me. I wanted answers and that's why I started this podcast. I wanna help you to lower your cancer risk and provide self-care tips for those in the battle. I'm getting answers and I wanna share them with you. I had so many great takeaways with Dr. Laura James. First of all, she calls estrogen a happy drug, which I can totally agree on because when my happy drug went away, I wasn't so happy anymore. But she also says too much estrogen can be problematic and we can have too much of a good thing. So she really cautions us about being careful about xenoestrogens. Xeno just, (laughs) hard to say, xenoestrogens are estrogens that come from the environment. So it might be the air we breathe or a simple one to change, quit microwaving in plastic and stop using so much plastic because that's a xenoestrogen and that can disrupt your hormones. She also tells us that estrogen may not cause cancer. She did say the jury is still out, but it certainly can encourage the growth of breast cancer. Listen to today's episode to get all of her amazing eye-opening tips about breast cancer and estrogen. I'm so excited for this podcast. So this is my naturopathic oncologist, Dr. Laura James. And I got to tell you, I I definitely went the full Western route with breast cancer, and I wish I would have met her sooner. I think I would have maybe done a few things differently. So welcome, Dr. James. How's that for an intro? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's a great intro. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Deborah. Yes, you really helped me, and I met you probably... Um, I was probably 80% through my breast cancer journey when I met you, and I... I I say maybe I would have done things differently. Who knows? When you're when you hear the C word, you do what you got to do. But can you tell us what a day in the life of a naturopathic oncologist looks like? Sure. Um, so there is a difference between a naturopathic doctor and naturopathic oncologist, only in that the the patients that we treat are a little bit different. We're still coming at overall health from a holistic perspective. Um, But those of us who've gone the extra mile to become naturopathic oncologists, we are entirely focused on helping patients with cancer from a holistic perspective. And the majority of us really do practice an integrative model. So helping patients do both the conventional care and integrative care so that their outcomes overall are going to be better. Day to day, mostly I see women with breast cancer. I would say 85% of my practice is women with breast cancer, but I do see adults with other patients. And my clinical practice really is like any common private practice would be. So one-to-one patient care. Well, I really, I just felt like talking to you was such a godsend because, and of course I'm coming from cancer from a certified nutritionist perspective. And I I wanted to do things as naturally as possible. And I did and I didn't. So can you tell me when it comes to breast cancer, I, I think the biggest shock for me was I had to give up all my hormones. <laughs> and I was on hormones for a little while. So 
once that happened, I went into immediate menopause. That was a real struggle. Can you tell us why do women have to give up their hormones at that point? Yeah, so it's that's a very good question. It's a very difficult question to answer because we have some science. We don't have all the science. That abrupt shift um, when you have been on some kind of hormone replacement therapy and you're diagnosed with breast cancer and you have to come off right away, that's an awful feeling. And it leads to, in many cases, a really difficult quality of life kind of experience, right? Mm -hmm. Women can have that experience even if they don't have breast cancer, whether it's they're on hormone replacement and they go off for some reason, or they just become menopausal. And that kind of shift can happen. Um, You know, you go from sort of 100% of your hormone levels to like 1% of your hormone levels. And Part of that reason is because we have estrogen receptors all over our bodies, not just in the breast, not just in the ovaries, not just on the uterus. We have them all over. And so estrogen in many ways really is kind of the happy drug for women, even though we can have problems with it, right? We can have too much of a good Mm -hmm. thing and that can cause problems in a different realm. So, you know, the, the standard of care for women who are going through breast cancer treatment, if they have an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which is 70% of the women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, They'll have have estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positivity. The recommendation is don't give any estrogen. If you're taking hormone replacement therapy, go off. If you're using herbs that could be estrogenic, go off. Certainly from my perspective, I want to encourage people to stop doing things like microwaving with plastic because there are xenoestrogens, estrogens from the outside, foreign estrogens that might be getting into the system. So there there's some environmental recommendations that can be made as well to reduce estrogen burden. We think estrogen encourages the growth of breast cancer. The jury's kind of out on whether or not it causes breast cancer. Um, But the encouragement of breast cancer is what we think is happening. And so that's why we have this whole course of treatment for women with, with ER positive breast cancer to decrease the amount of estrogen in their system. That's such an interesting point that environmentally, we can also start to lower xenoestrogens which is just, again, as you said, another form of kind of this outside estrogen that we're introducing. And that's something I I hadn't really heard in my breast cancer journey until I talked to you, of course. Right. And it's not necessarily something you're going to talk about with your conventional oncologist. Mm -hmm. There are certainly quite a lot of things in our environments, in our, I should say, modern environments that are going to be estrogen disruptors is what we call it. Um, People might be more familiar, well, people are certainly familiar with plastics and plastics up until only a few years ago were full of something called BPA, Mm -hmm, right? Right. Um, 
And BPA is now, you'll see if you buy something new that's plastic, that's like a a Camelback water bottle or something like that, it'll have a little thing on it that says BPA free. And that BPA is, um, it's bisphosphoacetate, I think think is what the acronym is for, is an estrogen disruptor. And it's one of many estrogen disruptors that we find in plastics in processed foods, in the way our non-processed foods are handled, for example, conventionally produced beef, right? So, or dairy products, things that have hormones and hormone-like products introduced into them. And you as a nutritionist, I know, know a lot about this, but there's a lot that particularly the American woman um, is exposed to in just day-to-day living that could be influencing both hormones and the way the female body handles um, hormones and then pollutants as well, right? Right. So what we're breathing, what we're drinking. Right. Lotions, I would imagine, too, Um lotions and potions that we're putting on our face and our body exactly okay yeah so you you said american women have you seen any research from other countries where maybe there's not such a heavy emphasis on plastics where there could there be lower breast cancer rates in other countries you know there are lower breast cancer rates in other countries but most of the data that i've seen related to lower breast cancer rates have more to do with diet and okay. i there may be information out there about other environmental things certainly lots of other countries where there um you know may be a lower rate of breast cancer still might have higher levels of pollution for whatever reason but you know i mean if you look at if you look at some of the studies on japanese women who have a lot of soy in their diet and soy Mm -hmm. has been you know sort of a controversial topic for a long time it's not in my book i think women should eat soy Um, But, you know, soy and fish and fresh vegetables, that's a very different diet for a Japanese woman than the kind of diet we have here in the U.S., right? Your average woman. So true. So So um, I've seen much, much more data regarding nutritional interventions or just lifestyle and culture um, and lower breast cancer rates. But there may be higher rates of other cancers. Right. Okay. So you just mentioned soy, which is, of course, I I hear it all the time. You still eat soy? People say to me when they see me eating edamame, um, Mm -hmm. which I love edamame. It's soybean pods. Mm -hmm. It's super high protein, high fiber. It's, you know, I I love them as a snack. So is soy not in jail anymore when it comes to breast cancer? It depends on who you talk to. Um, And you asked me about, you know, a day in the life of a a naturopathic oncologist. A lot of what we do in naturopathic oncology is try and think outside the box, right? Um, And so if you talk to a lot of conventional providers who may have been trained in the 1980s or early 1990s, even late 1990s, early 2000s, they might still be advising patients that soy is not okay to eat because they think that it will cause estrogen levels to go up. 
Soy indeed is a phytoestrogen. It is a plant-based estrogen. And there are quite a few foods that are phytoestrogens, quite a few plants. Um, But there have been in the last 10 years, I would say, some meta-analyses done looking at all the data around soy. And soy is actually breast protective. And my understanding is that it's breast protective because it takes up space in the estrogen receptor so that stronger forms of estrogen that would be naturally occurring, like estradiol is our strongest form of estrogen, Mm -hmm. won't sit in that estrogen receptor and cause stimulation of breast tissue. Soy can sit in that same estrogen receptor because it's a lock and key model. And so soy has a very similar looking key for that lock. And it stimulates a little, but not as much, right? So soy actually works the same way that tamoxifen does. Tamoxifen, a drug used post-active breast cancer treatment, is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So that sits in the estrogen receptor and modulates it. Soy acts very similarly. Soy is a serm. And so I recommend that women eat soy because based on the data, it does add a level of protection. That is so fascinating. Fascinating. There, there's also some evidence that mm-hmm. young women who eat a lot of soy in their diets experience that breast protection starting from a young age. So so what I tell my women who have daughters is feed them tofu and Mm -hmm. edamame. I I see that you didn't say soy milk or tofurkey. Well, I think soy milk, I I think soy milk is okay. Tofurkey, I'm really not sure what that is. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in this field for 30 years and I've, you know, had all different kinds of diets that I tried. And I remember when I was oh, probably 25, young and dumb, and I was eating everything soy. So I'd have, you know, two or three soy milk lattes a day. It was Thanksgiving. So I made a tofurkey out of, you know, all yeah. this super processed tofu. And, and my family would, you know, put me at the kids table. They didn't even want me, want me to eat with them because I was so obnoxious. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I think there's, from the data I've read, is that there's, you know, your natural soy, meaning it's an edam- it's edamame, it's tempeh, it's tofu. And then we've taken it and we've processed the living heck out of it and turned it into a fake hot dog. Correct. And, you know, Deborah, when you and I were 25, we're, we're roughly the same age. When you and I were 25, there wasn't much else out there besides soy milk. Like that was the alternative. Right. And, right. and That's so really true. I think I think soy milk is that borderline product. Um, I always recommend for people who will eat soy to eat whole soy. So tofu, tempeh, edamame, the fermented soy actually does have good research behind it Mm -hmm. as being protective. Not everybody likes Mm -hmm. that flavor. Um, So, but the the processed soy and particularly, I mean, 
you probably know this as, as well as I do, but soybean growth, particularly GMO soy in the Midwest, is a big cash crop, right? And that soy protein is yep. used in lots of different places. And some of those places are in the processed food supply that our women are exposed to. And so women may be inadvertently mm-hmm. eating high levels of GMO soy protein that they really shouldn't necessarily be getting. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that context, it may not be breast protective. It may be breast harmful Mm -hmm. as well as thyroid harmful. Oh, interesting. Soy can also affect the thyroid gland. Um, Okay. But, you know, it's you have this is an example of you got to read the labels and Mm -hmm. you want to be shooting for foods that if they have a label, you know, meaning it's not just like a whole apple, it has five ingredients or less. Right. Right. So but all of that processed soy, that's not going to be doing anybody any good. Not not any good. So you bring up labels and. um I invite you to jump in on this. And if it's not your area, that's fine. But can we trust labels? I have a good friend who's battling breast cancer right now, and she's going to need to be really careful moving forward. So how do you, you know, can she trust a label if it says, you know, non-GMO soy? My understanding is that there are some very tightly regulated definitions Um, in terms of USDA regulation. So organic is very tightly regulated and very hard for someone to get. I believe non-GMO is also tightly regulated. The things that aren't tightly regulated are terms like all natural, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like that's a little BS. Um, It's it's a load of BS. So I believe non-GMO is, but you know, Somebody proved me wrong. So we're going to get down into some uh, nitty gritty here and talk about, I'll just talk mm-hmm. about my experience and then I want you to just dive into the deep end with me, Dr. James. So I got diagnosed with breast cancer on September 1st, 2020. By September 2nd, 2020, I was off all hormones. And by September 3rd of 2020, I was no longer sleeping and sex was painful. And I think that's about where I met you (laughs) or or close in there. Probably. So going back to what I said at the beginning about the fact that the female body thrives with estrogen, having that switch turned off Mm -hmm. is brutal. And you know it from firsthand experience. I know it from lots of clinical experience. It is brutal and it is an unfortunate situation for women who have to go there. Um, The brain most Mm -hmm. likely needs estrogen. The tissue needs estrogen. I mean, all of your tissue, certainly all of your reproductive tissues, the the vaginal Mm -hmm. tissue, all of that needs estrogen and the bladder needs estrogen. You think of your bladder as being like, think of it as like a balloon that has a triangle on it. That triangle is called the trigone muscle. And that muscle is what controls your bladder size, really. 
and it has estrogen receptors on it. So a lot of women who go through what you did also have urinary incontinence. They're starting to leak a little bit of urine um, out in public or, you know, cough, sneeze, whatever. Boom. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, wet underwear, which is uncomfortable for women, certainly. Um, Of course, yeah. Right? So... And increase, is there also in, uh, risk of increased urinary tract infections as yes. well? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and it's because the um, it's because the whole urinary tract becomes like this the the tissue becomes thinner. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. That's that's what happens in the um, with the vaginal tissue is it starts to atrophy. The mm-hmm. the good news, however, for a woman so. I want to differentiate because we are talking about women who've had breast cancer. You know, there is the larger subset of women who have this estrogen sensitive breast cancer. There are women who have triple negative breast cancer as well, right? So negative Mm -hmm. for those estrogen receptors. And, you know, the two breast cancers behave a little bit differently. Certainly dealing with these menopausal symptoms, which is really what they are. So eventually they affect all women everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. The way we can handle those is a little bit different, right? Um, The good news in all cases is that women can at least use some form of vaginal estrogen. And that's because there's no systemic absorption when you use something vaginally. And there are, okay. there are a whole bunch of things that you can use, a whole bunch of estrogen products that you can use vaginally mm-hmm. that will not have that systemic absorption where the concern is about estrogen receptors receiving estrogen right. at the breast tissue, right? Right. So okay. that can be that can be a sort of lifesaver from the standpoint of vaginal comfort, um, mm-hmm. urinary tract issues, um, mm-hmm. the the incontinence issues, and in in some cases the the sex issues as well. Um, mm-hmm. The the tissue, it doesn't take long for the vaginal tissue to reabsorb a little bit of estrogen. Um, hmm. And so you can turn around those symptoms relatively quickly. Um, okay. And so 99% of the time, I do recommend that my patients use some form of vaginal estrogen, even okay. if it's just for comfort. Um, right. Just, Mm -hmm. just for comfort, as opposed to having wild and crazy hanging from the ceiling kind of sex. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you could have both. Or you can have both. You can definitely (laughs) have both. You sure can. (laughs) But if it, if it makes, if it makes women who've been through this feel any better, 95% of the women that I talk to, whether or not they've had breast cancer and been on HRT or off HRT or whatever. 95% of the women that I've talked to over the last 20 years complain about low libido. And honestly, it's not necessarily about the estrogen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure there's lots of factors for low libido uh, because if you're not sleeping, you don't want to do anything, including that. (laughs) Correct. Right. So, you know, you, you, 
give up your hormones, in my case, and I haven't slept much in the last couple of years because my hormones are so wonky. And, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. What can we do instead? There are natural compounds that can be used. Um, You know, I, there's a whole laundry list of things that can be tried and, you know, we see if something works and most often I get to a place with, with my patient population, at least where we find something that works for sleep. And if we don't, sometimes it's a sleep study referral, but estrogen does play a role in that sleep picture. And sometimes really it's just from the standpoint of you're having six hot flashes at three o'clock in the morning. And so that wakes you up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can control hot flashes as well. Well, that brings up a really interesting point because the hot flashes just kicked my butt during cancer. And with every surgery, my oncologist would say, you really need to get sleep. And I thought, well, wow, terrific idea. (laughs) But I wake up every two hours sweating. Yeah. And then my mind kicks in to say, oh my gosh, what if you don't get clean margins this time? So then your mind starts rolling. So yeah, let's let's talk about, so there are some solutions with these hot flashes. There are, and there are a couple things you just said that we we can we can unpack, but let's let's talk okay. about let's talk about hot flashes first. So hot flashes, I mean, generally what's happening is there's a there's a drop off in the hormones and then there's some fluctuation. And mm-hmm. um, we believe also that estrogen does affect the health of blood vessels. And so hot flashes are often a vasodilation, so an opening of vessels, and then a vasoconstriction, Mm -hmm. a closing of vessels, and then it goes again. And so when you have a vasodilation, your blood sort of runs to wherever it goes and you can feel sensation of warmth with that. So that's called a a vasomotor symptom, right, of menopause. The way I address those vasomotor symptoms and the night sweats are, you know, sort of corollary to that, right? You get hot and then you get sweaty. Right. And then you get cold. I try and address those things in, in, in two primary different ways for my patients who've had breast cancer. One is let's talk about the sleeping environment. There is nothing that says, A, you have to sleep with your spouse or B, that you have to sleep under the same covers, right? I mean, the Europeans sleep with individual duvets for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's because everybody has their own temperature. There is nothing, there, it is not written anywhere other than in this weird inside the box, this is the way life is supposed to be. I have to sleep with my spouse under the prettiest bedding I can buy mm-hmm. from Garnet Hill. You know, it, like there's nothing that says you have to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Get your individual bedding or it could be the blanket or it could, you know, whatever. Or it could be separate rooms entirely because he's snoring and you can't sleep because it's too loud. Or you're snoring and he can't sleep because you're too loud, right? So sleep is sleep is underrated, right? We we live in a country of driving, 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 driving all the time, and we discount sleep. 
So making room for sleep, making your room a room for, your room really should just be for sleep and sex. No electronics, nothing stimulating, you know, don't let your cat sleep on your head. Don't do any of that. Make your bed comfy, supportive, and temperature controlled the way you need it to be temperature controlled. And, um, you know, if you have a hot flash, you adjust, but then you're adjusting your own micro environment as opposed to what your, what your partner in the bed might need. So, so number one, work on the environment. I probably should have said there are three things, but this is like 1.5. Sleep hygiene is really important. Going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, not spending too much time on electronics before you go to bed, right? And if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't just lie there with your brain box completely open. Get up, go read a silly magazine. You'll want to fall asleep again. Right. And definitely not reading something on your phone because I, I used to have so many clients who'd say, I, get a, I wake up at 2 a.m. and I just start, you know, reading a book on my iPad. No. Read a real book. No electronics. Yeah. Real book, real magazine, something like that. Yeah. Listen to music. Um, there, actually, there actually are some really supportive data around what they call segmented sleep, where maybe you get four hours at the beginning of the night, and then you're up for a couple hours, and then you mm-hmm. go back to bed, and you get another four hours. You're still getting a total of eight hours of sleep within a 24-hour period, it can be as restful, as beneficial as eight contiguous hours. So, but the hot flashes, so now hot flashes, I'm answering your question. Um, The way I approach it is sort of multifold. Um, I use compounds that are not going to increase estrogen levels and that affect the blood vessels more than they affect the hormones. So let me say that again. They affect the blood vessels because where is the action of that hot flash? The cause of the hot flash might be a hormonal fluctuation, but the action of the hot flash is at the blood vessel level. And so I like to use compounds that affect the blood vessels in addition to those that might be regulating that hormonal response and smoothing it out. What what we often use, so a lot of my training as a naturopathic provider has been in botanical medicine, right? So using plants as medicine. And there's a whole concept of, of plant medicine called adaptogens, And so adaptogens are herbs that we use that can bring down a really high level of something or bring up that a level of that same something. So an adaptogen is like a balancing agent. So ashwagandha, which is kind of a trendy, you know, herb, is an example of an adrenal adaptogen. If your adrenal glands are putting out too much stress hormone, it'll bring it down. If your adrenal glands aren't mounting enough of a response, 
it'll bring it up. And so there, there are a bunch of herbs that can do that for all hormones. And so those are the two directions that I really like to, that I really like to work out for hot flashes. There are other methods for dealing with hot flashes. Acupuncture can be helpful, particularly something called electro acupuncture, which is putting a very mild current through the acupuncture needles and and well-trained acupuncturists can do effective electroacupuncture. There was actually a study several years ago that was a head-to-head trial, randomized clinical trial, you know, gold standard of electroacupuncture versus um, uh, one of the predominant antidepressant drugs that is used in conventional medicine, um, antidepressant, anti-neuronal agent, um, gabapentin. And this was well-designed study comparing them. And the electroacupuncture actually did better and had longer-term results than the gabapentin. So interesting because I, I have been so desperate because of these crazy hot flashes that I, my surgeon, she put me on an antidepressant that she said this is going to be great for hot flashes. For me, whatever it is with my body, everything seems to work for about two or three months and then it comes crashing down. And I had a heck of a time getting off those antidepressants, but then I did try gabapentin and that worked for a while. So I, I love that there are so many options out there, but what this podcast is about today is really letting women know that, that there are options. And, and there's a couple of things I'm doing. Um, first of all, cutting back on alcohol made a huge difference. Not that I've been a real heavy drinker, but I'd have a glass of wine a few nights a week. That, especially red wine, was killing me. So I can't do that anymore. Um, cutting back on carbohydrates, you know, sometimes I don't want to cook dinner. I just want to have a bowl of popcorn. Well, not to, it, that was really, I think, just jacking up my blood sugar. And that seemed to contribute to hot flashes. Um, but one of the products, I mean, two products I want to do a shout out. Um, one is called Chili Sleep, and it's a mattress pad that pumps water through it. And then you can set the temperature to whatever you want. And so it just keeps my side of the bed <laughs> really cold. And that's reduced my hot flashes dramatically. But then you also have a hot flash supplement that I've been taking for about two months now that I have really seen some changes with. So I'm I'm happy I'm moving in the right direction with hot flashes, but it took a couple of years to get here. I, I know it did. And I'm I'm thankful that you're mentioning the product. If it's if it's okay, I'd like to talk about it for a second. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we'll also tag it in the show notes for people to order it. Okay. Yeah. So I have worked in this breast cancer space for going on 20 years and for, you know, I've tried everything with my patients to help them. And one of the natural compounds that I found interestingly effective for women, um, and I used it, you know, I sort of have this like idea in my head of like, where do I want to start with someone? And if that works great, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to go here, you know, my own little sort of algorithm for dealing with hot flashes. And 
all of a sudden then that particular product disappeared from the marketplace. And so I was left, and this was probably back in like 2010, I couldn't find it anymore. Um, and that compound is called gamma arisenol. And it's actually um, an oil from rice bran. It's a, it's a purified rice bran oil. And we think it affects, um, as I was saying, we think it affects that elasticity of the blood vessels and the health of the blood vessels. And I had found in some of my patients where I was really running out of options that the gamma arisenol worked really well, and then I couldn't find it anywhere. Or if I found it, it was in a product that had other things in it that were of concern to me for my patient population. So I finally decided that it was going to be up to me to put together an appropriate formula for the women that I serve. I serve women with breast cancer. And so earlier this year, I started a company called Best for Breast, bioflavonoid from the inside rind of oranges and other citrus fruit. It also acts at the vessel level. Um, black cohosh, which is a traditional hot flash formula that is also not estrogenic, and ashwagandha, which, as I mentioned, is an adaptogen, particularly of the adrenals. So this combination I put together for my patients because nobody else had it. I'm selling it online, and all profits are going to breast cancer research. Um, so I'm hoping that it helps people. Because out of my 20 years of experience, each one of those individual things has helped different women at different times. And so together, my hope is that this can be a really great option for all women, not just women who've had ER positive breast cancer, because um, I think it's a great thing. I also know that not sleeping can impact future cancer risk and recurrence of breast cancer. Absolutely. Yep. Which leads me to um, kind of this final, you know, big question. Why do you think one out of eight women are getting diagnosed with breast cancer? And what can we do about it? So that's a really interesting question to try and answer, right? And, and part of what I, part of what I want to start with is that 70% of medical research dollars in the United States goes towards cancer research. So, you know, we have an incredible vault of big brains working on this product or project, right? Working on the idea of cancer, cancer care, what causes cancer. If I knew, right, I'd have the Nobel Prize, but I don't. I think there are many different reasons why we have such a high incidence of cancer. I think, you know, number one, cancer is a metabolic disease. The fact that estrogen may play a role in any aspect of breast cancer is only one tiny little piece of the puzzle. Cancer is a metabolic disease. And so there is some aspect of the environment, the internal environment of a woman's body that would be promoting breast cancer cell development. Um, you know, we think that that has to do with 
blood sugar control, with inflammation, with the hormonal milieu. And that's not just estrogen, but stress hormones. Um, And then you add environmental influence, whether it's pollution or plastics or, you know, we're becoming full of microplastics, which is really scary. Um, It's really really scary. scary. Um, I know. Dr. Doctor, do you know Dr. Lee Aaron I don't Keneally? know her, no. Uh-uh. She wrote The Cancer Revolution, and I interviewed her uh, last year. And she said, we're ingesting about a credit card size a day right, of plastic. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. I think it's yeah. all of this. I think it's so many aspects of our modern life. Um, you know, particularly in the United States, we have a, we have a crappy diet, you know, standard American diet is a crappy diet and that's what the majority of people are, are eating. Um, so, you know, we're nutrient deficient from the get go. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, the Mm -hmm. rate is actually higher. It's more like a one in four incidence of breast cancer in the Pacific Northwest. What? I think it has to do with vitamin D. Um, and there's starting to be some studies about that. Um, but you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we, we don't get, um, enough vitamin D production naturally. Right. So, but I think, I think the other piece that we're going to learn a lot more about over the next 20 years really is we are just on the brink of understanding genetics and cancer. Right. And the genes Mm. that are tested for, Mm. you know, with the color test, with um, Oncotype DX or, you know, any of the, the tests that might be done when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, those genes have been shown to be mm-hmm. oncogenes, which if they are switched on, they will cause cancer, right? So that's a particular class of genes, these oncogenes, mm-hmm. you know, this gene equals cancer. But what we're really on the brink of, I think, is understanding the rest of our genetic makeup when it comes to things like detoxifying from all this stuff that's coming in, either from our food or from the environment or wherever, and detoxifying our own hormones, right? So there are a lot of genes Mm -hmm. that I think indirectly will be determined to be players in cancer development because, for example, maybe Mm -hmm. you just don't metabolize your estrogen well, and so it sits around in your system longer than it should. Right. But that has to do with liver detoxification. It has nothing to do with BRCA1 or BRCA2. Right. So all of that. Okay. So a little, I thought I said that was my last question, but now this is my super last question Um, to play devil's advocate here. Isn't there just more money for big pharma in treatment than cure? Um, Yes, I think there is. Um, Yes and no. I mean, that's a really hard question to, to answer. Anything related to big pharma has big money. And I think that the best we can do, it's very hard to go up against big money, 
right? It's very hard to go up against big money. It's very hard to go up against big institutions. It's very hard to go up against small institutions. But I think the best thing that we can do as individuals is learn how to critically think about research data, right? You know, learn how to evaluate the data in front of you um, as opposed to listening to various people in your circle. I think, um, you know, becoming critical thinkers is, is really the way out of our mess in lots of different ways. So. Couldn't agree more. And, and I will add, um, listen to that inner voice. And if, you're, if that inner voice is saying, you know, don't do this treatment or do that treatment or, you know, give that some credence. It's there for a reason. Well, and I think also, and and this is one other thing I want to mention, um, the other thing I've been spending an enormous amount of time on this year is I've been trying to um, basically write a living book. Um, I've been putting together a four-week intensive um, online program for women who've just been diagnosed with breast cancer to help them make really informed decisions about their care and whether or not an integrative model is the right thing for them. And a big piece of that is building your own team with people that you trust. And standard of care treatment for breast cancer is going to be relatively the same, regardless of whether or not you go to the great big fancy university hospital down the road or the tiny little podunk hospital farther down the road. If you find a medical oncologist, a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, if you find those people and you like them and they answer your questions and they treat you with respect and listen to your concerns, those are the people you want on your team. And there's nothing just like not sleeping under the same blanket with your, with your spouse. There is nothing that says you have to go with the team they give you. You can advocate for the team that you want. Love that. I love that so much. And I can relate because I actually ended up firing one of my oncologists because they just did not want me to question any of the treatment. And when I when I asked questions, they were not respectful. And so I asked for somebody else and I got somebody else and I got the answers. Uh, maybe I didn't want to hear the answers, but we had a respectful conversation. And that's really important in every season of your life, but certainly cancer. Well, and I think there's, there's so much dehumanization that happens in the breast cancer process. I mean, so many women are having their breasts taken off. And if that isn't a dehumanizing experience, I don't know what is. And to have the people around you, you know, cancer is a full-time job once you get it. So you want to like your coworkers, right? Um, having, having the right medical oncologist, all of these different people that you need to have 
It's so important to be able to empower yourself because it is your body. It is your life. It is your consent, right? You have to consent to every stage of the game, but you want to consent knowing what your risks and benefits are. And so that's where we get back to understand your diagnosis and understand what your options are. That's what I try and help women do is understand it and make really good informed decisions. And, you know, conventional cancer care and naturopathic care, integrative care, none of us have the answers. Oh, Dr. Laura James, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I love my cell phone. I love my AirPods. I admit it. But what I don't love is the radiation and electromagnetic frequencies that are coming out of both of those things. So all of a sudden, I got this ad on Instagram about this product called WaveBlock. Honestly, it seemed too good to be true. So I called the owner. His name is Ben. And we had an amazing conversation about this product he created basically to protect his kids from EMFs that were coming out of cell phones and headphones and you name it. He explained the whole process to me, how he took it to Europe to get it tested and how it really can block the EMFs that are coming out of our devices. So I've got a great coupon code for all of our listeners today. Go to the WaveBlock website. It's in today's show notes. Use the code ENOS20 and you can get 20% off of his products. Two of the products that I'm currently using are his wraparound WaveBlock for my AirPods. And then I also just got a new cell phone and he has a sticker that can go on the back of the cell phone that is also going to help to knock down the EMFs. It just gives me a little bit more comfort, I think, with using these items. Go to today's show notes to get your 20% off coupon for WaveBlock. Thank you for joining me today on the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I've got my shopping guide for all of my cancer self-care items in the show notes, along with information about today's guest and our show sponsors. And don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Keep in mind, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a gal that got diagnosed with cancer and wanted answers. If you need medical advice, please be sure to consult with a medical professional. And thank you for listening. 